There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot, bringing service and support together in one powerful platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up reps' time with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Good morning, everyone. It's Sunday, February 25th. I'm Catherine Laidlaw, and this is the weekend edition of The Hustle Daily Show. Today, I'll be chatting with writer Carrie Sun about her new book, Private Equity, her experience working at one of the world's biggest and most powerful hedge funds, and much more. So let's get into it. I'm Catherine Laidlaw, and I'm here today with Carrie Sun, the writer of Private Equity, a memoir of her experience working at one of the world's biggest hedge funds. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Catherine, it is my pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. I wonder if we can start with you telling us a little about what inspired you to write Private Equity. I've been kind of on this treadmill of work and just a career all my life. And so I really wanted to give myself the time and the space to, you know, not be so laser focused on one track and just explore. And so during my two years of my MFA, I wrote many personal stories. I also wrote a lot about work because (laughs) I care a lot about work. And, you know, I separated the two stories. One was a personal story and one was kind of a narrative critique of capitalism and the way we work now. And, you know, one of my teachers during my MFA said, Carrie, the more interesting story is how they're the same story. And that just blew my mind. Like, of course, connecting the two stories just immediately felt right. I really wanted to get into the nuances and the complexities of how we work and why we work. And even if we know something might not be working for us, why we stay in a situation and kind of the stories and the myths we tell ourselves of what we're doing, both at work. And as you mentioned, in my personal life, there you know, the stories interconnect. And so when I took a look around my peers during my MFA, everyone was burnt out. You know, people were working multiple jobs just to be able to support living in New York. And I just took a look around and really thought that this idea of the precarity of our work and how we're able to support our dreams and how we're able to have the time and resources and space to just figure out who we are and what we want our life to look like, that's the story I want to explore in my book because I have lived it. You know, as you were talking, I'm sort of thinking, why do we do that to ourselves, the level of burnout? And then I stopped myself and thought, no, 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 we don't do it to ourselves. We're participants in a system that necessitates that to some degree. As you say, people have expenses, right? They've got to pay their bills somehow. Yes, exactly. And also in my book, I talk about if anything happened at work, I was the first to blame myself. I was so quick with the self-blame and self-recrimination, self-loathing, just everything. And I thought, why couldn't I cut it? Other people seem to be so successful. So when something went wrong, I said, no, I need to double down on work, work harder, cut out everything in my life that I care about, including friends, family, like wellness, eating, I, you know, and so obviously that ended up kind of blowing up in my face in a rather spectacular and big way. But it was a internal journey I had to go through to understand that like, it wasn't for some lack of virtue or ability that I wasn't able to find the working conditions that I found myself in at this hedge fund I was at 
those conditions just were not sustainable for anyone. And to not blame myself, but rather to really question the environment and the systems I found myself in. So today we're going to be talking about the wild and sometimes surreal world of New York hedge funds, which you captured so masterfully in your book. And I wonder if you can fill in our listeners who have not had the chance to read the book yet. What was the job that you held at the fund? The job I held at the fund was described to me as being the sole assistant to the billionaire founder of this very prestigious and huge hedge fund. I will also note a caveat here that they probably call themselves an investment firm, but they have a hedge fund side. They also do venture capital investing, as I described in my book, but primarily they were founded as a hedge fund. And that's still how I think of them. And my job was to just help my boss, who not only was the founder, but still continue to actively manage the fund day to day on both investment matters and just fund management matters. And it was just to be his right-hand person. So I provided certainly administrative support, but also research and operational leverage to him. Just anything that he needed to get done, I was kind of this, I would say, like CEO of him, like if he were a company onto himself. So it was really, really intense. No two days were the same. And, you know, I think there's much talk now of AI and whether AI might replace jobs. And I've read people talk about it a lot is whether AI would kind of get rid of assistance and scheduling. But I think my job was so much more than that because it was being able to understand the relationships and the dynamics between people So it wasn't just a lot of meeting in during a free time. It was a lot of the negotiation of both schedules, which is time, but also just the human relationship aspect. It was high touch. Every day was different. And it was just a (laughs) constant 24-7 intensity, which was very exciting, but ultimately led to my quick burnout. I know this is something that you have been asked a lot. And in fact, you write about being sort of confronted with this question as you're going through the motions of deciding whether you're going to take the job or not. You had an incredible resume, two bachelor's degrees in math and finance from MIT, completed in three years and years as an analyst at Fidelity Investments. What drew you to the job, which in title is assistant, although in substance, it's much more than that? Thank you for that question. Yes. <laughs> Almost every single one of my interviewers asked me that question as well. And, you know, even though I did have a fast track career, both at MIT and at Fidelity, where I was promoted and rewarded both in terms of just compensation and, and title, I really felt like I didn't want to be on this like monotonically increasing career path where it was just one step of the ladder to another step to another step. I really think that sometimes what to other people looks like going backward is actually going forward on your own path. And I didn't want to go be on that financial career path anymore. I mean, it just was not meaningful to me. And now I often think about how do people know what career they want to have? I didn't, you know, and some people who have that self-knowledge very early on. I'm, to be honest, like a little jealous of them. You know, they know something about themselves that I just wanted to know I didn't know. And so I was just trying these different paths. And I think we need to allow ourselves and be understanding when our friends go through periods of transit just to be able to explore and discover. And so I dropped out of Wharton because I knew I didn't want to take on, you know, $200,000 of debt to do my MBA 
not sure if I would be in a career path after to make that back. So I dropped out. I ended up taking classes in epistemology, moral philosophy, English literature, creative writing. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Of course, I was burning through my savings at that time. So I think what I'm trying to get at here is it is a privilege to be able to have the time and space to discover what you want to do. I think as a society, we need to give that privilege to more people. So I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do a different path. And I also knew that wanting to be on the path toward being a writer, it was going to be very, very difficult to make the financial side of the equation work. I didn't come from money. I grew up in poverty, but my parents were able to work very, very hard. And, you know, by the time I finished high school, I think we were in the middle class and they sacrificed everything to give me these opportunities. And so I felt like I had to at least try to see if some of these, you know, Wall Street paths would be for me. And it ended up not being for me. And so by the time I knew I wanted to change paths, I thought, well, why not have a day job that's still sort of half in Wall Street? You know, I had been on the investment side at Fidelity, but if I'm no longer on the investment side, maybe that would take the pressure off a little bit where I wasn't responsible for making these investment calls where, you know, I would be on the hook if I made the wrong decision. I thought maybe if I could just have a day job, more or less a nine to five or even a nine to six, and I would have my evenings free, weekends free. I mean, so many writers and more than writers, artists, creatives have a day job. And I I think there is no shame in having a day job. And so this is the day job I took to see if I could jumpstart my second career, my writing hustle, as it were. But it did not turn out that way. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. I know you spend a whole book talking about this, but for our listeners, can you describe what entering the world of investment firms or hedge funds is like? What appealed to you about it or what sort of enchanted you about it at the beginning? You know, I can't say if this is the same process for everybody, but to enter the world of hedge funds. And I would say this hedge fund that I was at is playing at the very, very top of their game and the whole just industry. I went through 14 interviews and I also had 10 reference checks. And most of those references were not actually given by me, but they found people off of my LinkedIn and just randomly and said, you know, we would like to call these people. Can you make it happen? So it was a test of both my resourcefulness, you know, and how well I responded to a sense of urgency. You know, they were like, we want to call these people the next day. Can you make this happen? And so immediately from the get-go, even before I started at the firm, the world to me that I was entering was extremely fast-paced, super intense, where everything was urgent. And it was almost a test of, do you really understand the stakes of every decision? Because every decision both of your work and that you're making has consequences down the line. And my boss in the book, one of his sayings or sort of ideas was how you would be in practice as how you would be in the championship game. Meaning that there is no such thing as just practice. Everything was fourth quarter championship game or, you know, overtime at the Super Bowl. You know, everything was just the game is on the line. What are you going to do? And so instead of thinking, you know, perhaps... (laughs) this level of intensity is not going to allow me to have a life outside of this day job. I was so impressed with them. And I think that gets to what you were saying, Catherine, about just like, why work it? What is the allure? And for me, the allure was just being near amongst people who strove for the best of the best. And I think it's very difficult to predict the market or time the market, but just 
irrespective of how well they were doing and their returns and performance, which historically have been extremely high, but irrespective of it, there was this culture there that even the best wasn't good enough. You had to be the best in the world. That was another one of my boss's sayings. You have to be the best in the world and then continue to try to up that best. And I don't know if necessarily everyone there loved the specific aspects and every aspect of their job, but certainly what they loved and I could tell was just striving for high performance. And I just found that so alluring. I wanted to be around that. And I also think there's fundamentally something just deeply human about wanting to be challenged. And I really felt like this job was going to be a challenge in a way that perhaps my prior job as a quantitative equity investment analyst at Fidelity Investments didn't afford me, you know, and that job was super challenging in different ways. A lot of it, quantitative, mathematical, building these models, but this new job being the right hand to a billionaire founder of a large hedge fund allowed me to both use my intellectual side, but also the side of me that loves people and stories and humans and relationships. There is this really telling anecdote in the book where I think you call her Sloan, who's another assistant, is leaving the firm and sits down with your boss and says, thank you for giving her the opportunity to sort of be that close to the decisions that were really propelling the world forward. And I remember thinking, wow, that must be intoxicating to be able to sort of reach out and touch that energy day to day. Yes, yes, exactly. And in addition to that, you know, there are just all these little moments where I think this was in the early, early to mid 2010s. And I got to the firm, we had a juicero. I don't know if people remember that $700 juicing startup, but we also had a Peloton um, and people were postmating. And, you know, now those terms are kind of well in business and tech discourse, but, you know, at that time, everything was so new. So everything I was living the way that we were doing work and our life at work was just so, I felt like ahead of the curve in every way. And it was just really exciting to be first and to have that access to later what I would see these ideas like Peloton and Postmates disseminate across culture itself. Do you think that's part of the reason why people are really fascinated with stories like these? I feel like the 1% of the 1% is so alluring yes. to people who, I know for me, it seems so glamorous and completely out of reach. And maybe that's part of it too. Yeah. I think the allure of the 1% of the 1%, and I think at the level of billionaires we're talking about, there, I think there's another of the 1% there. But I think broadly in society, there's a sense in which these investors, both of private equity, hedge funds, you know, alternative assets, these investors that are part of this very exclusive elite club are owning more and more of, I would say, Main Street. We're, we're seeing how they're owning, you know, hospitals, single family homes. They're actually branching beyond, you know, Wall Street to really own a lot of the way the average American works and lives and plays. And I think there's a deep curiosity about these very secretive billionaire hedge funders and asset managers, because there is just so little public information about who they are and how they think that's not scripted through a PR interview, let's say. You know, and so what are they really like when the cameras are off? And I just really wanted to take a close look at that. Speaking of the tape, running or not running, how far into your role were you when the writers on the TV show Billions reached out to you? 
This was in my second year. I was there about a year and a half. And then I went to the Billions writer's room. What was it like to be in that writer's room? It was incredible. I have to say, I think the Billions writers are absolutely brilliant. And I had this moment. It was really an important moment for me because I was asked to go to the writer's room. You know, they were considering bringing a character like me, like a chief of staff, right-hand person onto the show. And here I am in the room and there are at least, I think, eight writers sitting around a table, just all looking at me, firing questions. And I wasn't sure what they were going to ask. I was prepared for all of it. I mean, I think they're so smart. They would never ask a question like, tell me any secrets or tell me anything you're not supposed to. But I thought it was going to be more about specifically just my role in connection with my boss. Because as you mentioned, I had been there a year and a half at that time. And so I really was used to my identity being completely tied to my boss, who everyone else was very, very interested in. Instead, the writers just asked purely questions about me. And somehow that totally shocked me. They just wanted to know as a character who I was. And so they asked me a lot of questions about how I grew up, my parents, and just what my life as a young woman working in finance was like. And I was a little bit shocked by that, actually. And then the other really important kind of internal moment in that scene is just how I really realized, I mean, I thought they were so smart. They were so perceptive, not just about how hedge funds might work, but the characters and the character motivations inside hedge funds. And I realized that I perhaps maybe didn't want to be in the seat that I was in, you know, working at this fund and they were asking me questions. I wanted to be where they were. I wanted to be the writers writing about these really interesting characters that, you know, you might hate them, but you also kind of love them. You know, there's such love-hate relationship with this world and these characters. And that's when I realized like, oh, maybe I want to be the writer here. So you talk about sort of realizing that maybe you want to be in the writer's room or, or have your own writer's room. Yes. When did the sheen of the job that you had start to wear off? And what did that look like? What did it feel like? I think the sheen really started to wear off after, I would say, about one year. I kind of internally gave myself one year to ramp up on the job. And I was starting a new life with this new job in a new city in New York. And I was so excited about it. And I gave myself about a year to kind of get my bearings. Now, my first year, I was absolutely burnt out. But I thought, you know, the second year will be better. And my boss also at the time, he promised me the second year will be better because I will be used to a lot of these patterns and the pace of work. And then it just quickly, month after month, it wasn't better. It was actually the worst it had ever been at that point. And I think a lot of it was, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about just really difficult to predict performance. You know, they've had spectacular outperformance over the years. And then the second year, they ended up having a very, very difficult start to that year, which made my job just infinitely more difficult. And then my friends around me noticed how my behavior was starting to change. I usually don't drink and just actually so I could be able to work as well. And after work every day, I reach for a glass of wine, one or two glasses, and it's the behavioral change, you know. And then I certainly had a very difficult relationship with food. In the first year of my work and also my burnout, I was so busy often, I did not eat dinner. I would just not eat dinner and sometimes more than that. And so in the second year, the relationship went the other way where I started 
feeling uncontrolled with respect to food. And so I started binging. And again, I don't want to focus so much on quantities. It was that feeling of being completely out of control with respect to the way I interacted with the world and my habits. And I withdrew from my friends. My friends said they could no longer recognize me. And several of them asked me, like, Carrie, when was the last time you played piano? When was the last time you wrote anything? And I realized, I told myself, you know, I would get this day job, I would start writing in my free time. I hadn't written a word, a single word, and it had been a year and a half. And that's when I knew I probably need to make a very big change in my life. Were you on call all the time? Yes. I was on call 24-7. And, you know, sometimes there would be emails Friday night at 1130. I had to respond to it instantly. Sometimes there would be, you know... Saturday night, I need to get from this place to this place. Like you need to make this happen. It wasn't all the time, but it was that inability to plan my days and plan my life that ended up being really difficult. So it wasn't like I was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I was certainly on call for all of it. And so Often, you know, I would make plans with friends for dinner and I blew past more than 50% of those plans. And I have so many texts with friends where it's just like, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, and I didn't feel good about who I was, the friend that I wanted to be. And just personally, you know, I would sometimes be like, okay, I'm going to reward myself by going to the movies by myself and just like engage in culture and the arts, which I obviously love so much. And, you know, even an 8 p.m. movie. I would do my best to make it, couldn't make it. And so it's not about the $16 that I lost on that movie ticket, but rather the expectations that I was setting up and that I was unable to meet because of work day after day. In the writing, there's this sort of low-running tension that underscores all of these scenarios in the book. And you just sort of feel this, like, it's not that you're getting messages all the time. It's that you could be getting messages all the time. And so you have to be free and available for whatever crisis or urgent need is coming down the pipe at any given moment. Exactly. And so you can never actually relax, you know? And so my boss in the book, who was honestly very kind and wanted me to succeed, he wanted to help me rejuvenate and recover by giving me these really expensive, fabulous spa days, massages, vacations, you know, and I just, I still wasn't able to relax. Like when I was getting my massage, because I'm like, oh, my phone could ding at any time. You know, I just was never able to relax because as you say, I just had to be ready for that text or email in which like I would have to cancel my next day and just deal with something. One thing I really liked about the book is that you sort of lay out your experience of your eyes sort of opening to the vast inequality in the world and even just in New York. And I wonder morally how you felt about what you were doing towards the end. Toward the end of the book, I really was unable to live with myself, to be honest. And so part of, I think, the literary quality of the book comes from my trying to document and show on the page a dawning awareness and changing consciousness. So I'm trying to unwind some clear self-delusions that I had at the beginning of the book, you know? And so to give myself a a little more credit, I think um, I was telling myself these stories about what I thought work was like and what I wanted my career to be because I really felt like that's what I needed to survive just to get by. And the story is kind of unpacking that. So another way to also think about the narrative 
thrust of this book, aside from being self-discovery, is I think of it as my coming to understand my own morality and my politicization, I'll say. And I kind of went from, I would say, a amoral, apolitical view of the world. And that it wasn't even a view that I strongly held. It was just part of that was also inherited from my parents. They grew up, came of age during the Cultural Revolution of China. And that was just an extremely tumultuous time for them. And they would never think this, but I think they have a lot of trauma from that time. And they just don't even speak about it. And they just don't even think about it. They're just like, don't talk about it. And part of coming from that and seeing how my parents interacted with the world, being heads down and not speaking up just in any political way and not being engaged and active in political matters was a way of survival for them. And as I continued working in this bubble of extreme wealth and extreme privilege, I, instead of finding myself, you know, wanting to make more money and defend them, I found myself more and more feeling like this is not the right way to set up society. And I have so many moments, many of which are in the book, but, you know, in my day-to-day life at the fund, I would see other people being so kind to us and we would get free things all the time. And on a fundamental level, I was like listening to my guy. I'm like, why are we getting free things? Because we can pay for these things. Like we should pay for these things. And yet people are giving us, you know, handouts, freebies. And I just don't think that's fair. And so in the book, I'm not so much critiquing any specific firm, which is why I also chose pseudonyms and anonymize, but rather just this whole class of billionaire investors and hedge fund managers. That sort of leads me to something I wonder about often, not that I will ever have to worry about this personally, but something that you reflect on a little in the book too is, can you be a billionaire and also be a good person? And I wonder where you settle on that question now. I think it's really, really, really hard But I will say I'm not a cynic. My boss in the book actually calls me an internal optimist. I looked the humanity in everybody, literally everybody, including some of the people who caused me pain in the book. I think my boss in the book tried extremely, extremely hard to be a good billionaire. And I think part of what is difficult about good is what does good mean? Does it mean not breaking the law? you know, because he definitely did not do that. So he is good in that sense. But I also question like, why is our definition of good vis-a-vis billionaire so low? And I think we should have higher expectations when it comes to morality and ethics with regards to billionaires. You know, the main struggle or conflict between me and my boss in the book is that as much as he said he valued me and my work, he was ultimately unwilling to give me the resources that I needed to do my job. And it was clear that I was burnt out. I mean, it showed physically and emotionally. And even other people at the firm saw this. And I told him, I'm completely overwhelmed. I need help. And he just didn't really believe me. And so I questioned, was he being good there to just not understand what I was saying and about the help I needed? And so as much as I think he's good in the sense that he really cared about doing the right thing and staying on the right side of the law. He wasn't good in that I was struggling in an emergency and he didn't help pull me out from under water. He tried, but ultimately he couldn't do it, you know? And so I don't really come down, I think in the book, 
so prescriptively on one side or another, but I'm raising the question of what makes a good billionaire? What makes a good boss? Even if they value you, rewarding you in terms of compensation and also maybe words of affirmation, but are they giving you what you need to feel good about your job and who you are? I think that's a fundamental question. One thing that really struck me was when you did quit, your boss said, we'll get back to you. Yes. Like he was so unaccustomed to not being in control yes. of the situation. Yes. It's like, get back to me about what? I'm yes. giving yes. my resignation. Exactly. Like, I don't need you to get back to me. I quit. So I can walk out. Like, you know, I'm doing you a favor by giving you three weeks notice. Like, I, I don't need you to decide, you know, quote from him, we've decided to let you go. And so... By that, he's still trying to own the decision of my leaving as something that he decided to give me, you know, and he didn't decide to give me. I chose to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. After multiple times raising this as something that was going to have to happen if things didn't change. Yes. So after you left, they did end up hiring two people to fill your role. And I wonder how that felt for you. That felt incredible. I am honestly so happy for him and, you know, his two new assistants because I think they are able to do their job better. I just don't think being overworked actually is helpful to productivity. I know in the book you give your coworkers pseudonyms. Yes. What was it like deciding you were going to write about this experience and then writing about people you know in that way? What did you sort of have to weigh? I don't think of my book as a tell all because I'm not telling all. I'm actually telling minimum about everyone else so that I can tell my story. You know, I'm also extremely cognizant of the fact that I feel a deep sense of responsibility as a writer to get the story both right and to be fair about it. And I made the decision to allow myself to look the worst. And I wanted everyone else to kind of not look better than me, but just that, you know, because they're not telling the story on their own terms, I wanted to protect privacy and confidentiality and really just present a really human view of who they are. I think that our imperfections as humans are beautiful. I don't want to read a story where there's no conflict and everyone is doing amazingly at work and getting lots of bonuses and your boss loves you. And so boring. So boring. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly it wasn't my lived experience, but I wasn't going to include anyone who I didn't really have actual affection for. They were doing their best in that system as well. And the system just beat them down. And so they were doing what they could to survive. Every single character in the book, including everyone in the book who might have caused me pain on my journey, I really almost have to thank them because I am who I am today and where I am today because of everything that happened. Which the gift of hindsight is so powerful. Yes. <laughs> and then I guess the last question is, how are you doing now? What does your life look like now? Right now, I am absolutely living my dream. I am a full-time writer. I, I can't believe I am here. I am here because of all the help that I've received along the way. I have a fantastic team. I've had people who have believed in me as a writer from the very beginning. And that has just been so, so rewarding. And what I've been able to carry over from my past life to this new life as a full-time writer is just this sense of discipline. I work probably more now than I actually even <laughs> worked at the job in the firm. But I think the main difference is that I get to choose how to spend my day. 
and the time and when and what I work on when. And I would say I'm thinking about my work or like making notes and at least eight hours a day. And it doesn't feel like work because I have flexibility and control and agency over how I spend my day and how I plan my days. And I would not trade that for anything in the world. That agency is so innate. I feel like we all just want that ability to choose in a big way or a small way. You know, it's like having that agency means everything. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so happy for you. And I hope things are going well so far. I imagine it's sort of a stressful, but also exciting time. Carrie, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Catherine. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. If you're not subscribed, go get yourself signed up at thehustle.co slash email. Catch you next time. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team, Alan, Leanne, Elliot, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player, Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.